0: Our summer series will kick off next week. Chad Thompson's gonna uh, bat lead off for us. And we're working on the entire summer uh, focusing on um, horrible Christian advice, All right? Because some of us mean well and yet utter some of the absolute worst psycho babble garbage from this world. And we, th- we think that we're doing our friends a good favor, But we're not, because we're not offering biblical counsel. We're just offering a feedback loop from the things of this world. And so, we're going to look at some really bad Christian advice that we've all given and received, and uh, it'll be a lot of fun for you. You don't want to miss that this summer. It's going to be a lot of fun. But this morning, uh, before we uh, before we finish uh, before we launch into that summer. Um, series, I'm going to look at a a passage together with you guys today that that has really spoken to my heart. Um, I'm not going to lie, this is born out of just a, a A great interaction with the Lord and something that he really ministered to me with. And so I wanted to share uh, that with you. And I feel like that's probably the appropriate thing to do and that what Paul says, the comfort that you've been given in your trial is so that you can share that with others and comfort them in the same affliction. And so the Lord's been good to me in this passage specifically and I want to share that with you. I trust that he'll be good to you as well. We're in the gospel of Luke. We're going to start in the 20th chapter in the 45th verse. Luke twenty. 45, and we're going to read through to 21, verse 4. Two little vignettes that might not normally be connected together, but I think you'll see after we're done why they should be connected. All right, Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to the disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, And love greetings in the marketplace, and the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feasts. Who devour widows' houses and, for a pretense, make long prayers? They will receive their condemnation, the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, "Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them." For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Let's pray. Father, we need your spirit today to empower us to hear and receive the word. We need the ministry of the spirit to illuminate the pages of the scriptures and the words that we hear. God, we need your grace. We need your strength. We need faith to believe these words and promises and the courage to take steps of obedience and repentance in response. So we ask, God, that you would provide all that you can provide, the things that only you can provide. Bring change to our hearts. Bring joy as we find submission to you. uh, Bring satisfaction in our lives as we yield to your will for us. We pray for your blessing on our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I, I, I grouped my thoughts together today around the heading "the warning and the widow." I don't know if it works or not. It just it helped me. So there it is. It's not very clever. sorry about that. I'll, I'll pick up my game next week. I promise. But uh, the warning and the widow. The first the first thing we're going to see this morning in that first section is Jesus gives a pretty clear warning. And he gives a warning where he says to his disciples in the, in the hearing of all the people, so he's around these Pharisees and Sadducees, he's around the religious leaders of the day, and he says to them, hey, look, I want you to be careful of all these guys. <laughs> that, should, that would alarm the religious people. It would alarm the, uh, the disciples. It would probably make them feel a little awkward. My, you, ever have a, you ever have somebody do that? You ever have a kid? who speaks real loudly in public about somebody else in public and then you're embarrassed because they all know you're... My, my grandfather, we went out for dinner with my grandfather uh, when he was later in life and his hearing was, was going. And uh, so we're sitting down for dinner at this really nice Italian restaurant and this, this poor family walks in and they've got, they've, it's a husband and a wife and they got like 100,000 children. Like there's 110 billion of them scattered around the room. And my grandfather says, that poor lady's got a ton of kids. And he said it really loud and she looked over at us and we were like, oh, pop come on, right? So here's Jesus, in the hearing of all these people, beware of those people. And the disciples are like, oh man. And he says, beware of the scribes and the teachers of the law. Okay, well, who, who are these scribes? Who are these teachers of the law and why are we supposed to beware of them? Right? The, these scribes, these teachers of the law were actually experts in the law. I mean, we need to remember at this time, not everybody could read and write. Beyond that, books weren't readily available. Nobody had a Kindle Paperwhite to just download multiple copies of the Bible to. They weren't weren't able to be read. And, And in Judaism, the word of God and the law of God were central to the faith of the people. And at first, the priests and the Levites were the ones dedicated to the task. But over time, they were supplanted by a group of other teachers And by the time that Jesus came onto the scene, this group was well-established and recognized for their knowledge of the law, for receiving honorable titles such as master and rabbi. And we look at that and we go, hold on a second. Wouldn't they be the good guys? Why should we beware of the people who are teaching the law? Shouldn't we direct people to them as an example? Aren't these the kind of men that we would want our boys to emulate? That's a good question, right? I mean, God reveals himself to his people through his word. These people have given their whole lives to knowing that word. It should follow that those people know the God of the word, and we should be able to look to them as examples. Well, no, not really. Because what happened was, over time, the traditions and the interpretations, the teachings of these scribes began to spread and be formalized into rabbinic Judaism, a faith that not only included what God had said in the Torah, but also a seemingly endless list of other regulations that these teachers had devised, in order that their followers might know what it was to live righteously in in their day which is how you come up with rules about how many steps you can take on the Sabbath and whether or not it's lawful to spit in the dirt and make mud. Because that's not what God said in remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, but that's the extra layer of tradition that gets added on over time. It's almost like these guys, they they heard what God said and then they wanted to prove that they were really listening and they were really righteous, so they added another another rule, another layer, another step to their obedience so that people would see that they were really committed and really devoted. And out of this culture comes an oppressive, an oppressive, tyrannical form of religious devotion that does nothing but puff people up with self-righteousness, all the while missing the weightier matters of the law. Do you remember Jesus' condemnation to the Pharisees? That you're tithing out of your spice rack You're giving a tenth of your dill and your oregano and your cumin, you're you're putting spices and you are failing in matters of justice and mercy and caring for the poor. You're experts at missing the point. So why are we to beware of them? Well, that's a great question. The reason you're to beware of these, and certainly it wasn't every scribe that ever lived, but this This group that he was highlighting had common themes through it. And he said, here's why. Because their devotion is twisted. Their devotion is twisted. They wear long robes, which in and of itself is odd, right? But not in that day. They were adorned with exquisite robes. You might say, well, so what's the big deal? They wore long robes. I've seen seen all the Jesus films. Everybody wore long robes. What's the big deal? The big deal is that they were wearing long robes, and they were, they were exaggerating their uniform to draw attention to themselves. They were drawing attention to their honorable positions. They were drawing attention to their influence. They would, they would add longer tassels to the hem of their robes. They, they loved to wear exquisite clothing so that you could spot them instantly, and it would show them or show off their spiritual prowess as they wandered amongst the commoners, right? Kind of over the top in their uniforms. Some have suggested these were prayer shawls that are typically worn in private and they would wear them in public just to show everybody how holy and pious they were. Not only that, they, so they wanted to be seen as somebody really special. And then when they wandered in the marketplace, they wanted the greetings, They wanted people to come up and tell them how great they were. They wanted the the loud announcement. They wanted the introduction to the family. Oh, oh, come in, Mr. So-and-so. Look, mom, dad, kids, look who it is. It's the rabbi. Look at him. He's here visiting. They wanted that, that affection from the crowd. They wanted be patted on the back. They craved and desired in an unhealthy ungodly way esteem in their position. They had had moved straight past being a servant to these people and they were now the lords being served by these people. They wanted the greetings in the marketplace. They wanted seats of prominence in the synagogue. They they wanted to sit up here and stare at them while they were gathered together. They wanted to be seen in the front of the room. They wanted to be seen as the word actually was between them and the people. They wanted to be seen as above the law in some senses. They wanted to be known as prominent figures in the community. They wanted a place of honor at the feasts. If you invited them to come, they expected that they got to sit next to the host or at least at the head table. Now, everywhere I go, I I, I end up being invited to parties and feasts and receptions and things like that. I uh, I, I set the expectation, like, like I did when I was a child, that I'm going to sit at the kids' table. So I walk in, and I assume that there's a folding card table in somebody's basement downstairs, and that's where I'm going to end up, right? And then, when they reveal my actual seat, then I feel very excited about that. Wow, we set our expectations nice and low. These people set their expectations very high, that if they showed up, they expected that they were sitting next to the host in a place of prominence so everyone could see them. Do you guys know religious people like that? Because I do. And doesn't that turn our stomachs a little bit? To see people who are so puffed up in their own piety that they want to put it on display for everybody? Doesn't doesn't that just... I mean, isn't that the reason that some people stay away from the church for decades and decades? Because they've known too many people like that? Who act all puffed up and separate from the sinners of this world? And Jesus says, look... You need to stay away from those guys. Then he says this, they devour widows' houses. A little bit uncertain, but it could have been that these teachers of the law had so ingratiated themselves to the widows that they would receive financial support for their ministry. And in that way, they had not become servants, but now they're predators. They seek to consume and to take from those who are vulnerable and in need. Instead of serving them. Using their position, one, one commentary said, to manipulate widows and their possessions so the scribes get richer and the widows instead grew more and more needy. Completely upside down. Completely backwards. That's not pure and undefiled religion. Remember what pure and undefiled religion is? You care for the orphans and the widows and their affliction and you keep yourself unstained from the world. These people... Had become stained by the world and were devouring the widows, wolves in sheep's clothing. Then it says that they, they, in, in addition to that, into devouring the widows, they also make long prayers and they, they, they offer those for pretense. They, they want to impress people. You ever, you ever meet people like that? They take on a new persona when they start praying. You didn't know they knew Middle English until they started praying, and you're like, wow, I, I don't even know what that word means. And they pray long and loud and drawn out so that people know that they can pray. They create an impression of piety through their long-windedness in prayers. They want you to see and to hear them in their elevated spirituality. They want to be known as impressively religious people. That's important to them. But they don't really want to practice true religion. You see, there, there's the disconnect. Because true religion revolves around emptying yourself in sacrifice and caring for those in need that you love, growing in holiness and in sanctification. True religion is about the emptying of myself and the filling up of Christ. These people were about filling up themselves. And Jesus says, the condemnation is theirs. It's an interesting note here. They won't receive what they think they're going to receive. They're not going to get what they're looking for. See, they want blessing and they want righteousness. They want standing. They want honor. They want esteem. Not only with the people, but they want it with the Lord. And what is actually coming to them is judgment. And they will hear those words, depart from me. I never knew you, you wicked servant. Using your position to devour the poor and the needy among you. All the while in my name, get out of here. You have no part in me. See, the issue is not one of honor. I mean, The Bible calls us to honor those to whom honor is due, right? The Bible calls us to esteem those who are spiritual giants in our lives, to encourage uh, ourselves by their example, to submit to them and honor them. We're not talking about dishonoring people blatantly. What we're saying is the people who don't deserve honor, stay away from. That's what he said. Those who are manipulating people for position and prominence stay away from them. They had their order inverted. In in their mind, they were pretty special people and the people they led were their servants. But Jesus told us those who desire to be great must first become a servant. He says, no, these people think they're so special and they they look like they're gonna gain this great reward. In the end, all that's coming to them is judgment and condemnation. Okay, so he starts with this warning, and then he moves into this example of the widow. As he's standing there with them, he looks up, and he sees something that would help him bring this point a little closer to home. In verse 1, we're told that the rich were putting their gifts into the offering box. As Jesus looks at the crowd, he sees a number of wealthy people there. And they're making their way to the front of the room to put their gifts in the offering. Actually, Mark 12, 41 tells us they're placing large gifts. They're putting a lot of money in the box. Okay, so we have to think about this, right? Because in our our culture, you can give a large gift and nobody would know. You just write a check, drop it in the plate, you can give online, you can play on your phone while you're updating Twitter and Facebook with all the amazing things I say, you can check and put push pay, boom, right there, you've made a gift, right? We, you have the ability to give, and other than like one person who records it for us, nobody knows. They didn't have that option. So if the rich brought an offering, they didn't bring their checkbook, they brought the offering. And if they brought a large sum, they didn't just bring their phone and put it in their app. They brought a large sum with them. And when they placed it in the offering, you could hear it. You could actually hear the money being dropped in. Remember, remember those VBS, uh, okay, I'm dating myself, Every, Probably shouldn't even use this. All right, everybody 30 and under, just check out for a second. Remember those VBS uh, penny offerings or nickel offerings we used to do? And somebody would run in and dump like $2 worth of pennies in and the sound of it was like, yay, we're gonna win because you could hear it all coming in. It sounds like that. In a crowded room, you can hear the plank, plank, plank of all the, the coins hitting. All right, all right, all right, okay. So now, now we, we understand what's going on. Every offering can be seen and heard or unseen and unheard if it's small and insignificant. And in the middle of that, there is a rich, per, rich people coming up, dropping it in, and a poor widow. So, so what this looks like, if we today would take the offering, and most of us are reaching into our pockets and pulling out checks or little bundles of cash to place in the offering as it comes around, it would look like one of us, like Pastor Tyler, for instance, right? <laughs> coming in with one of those gigantic celebrity checks you get for winning a golf, Happy Gilmore. Remember Happy Gilmore had all those, I'm sorry, again, I'm dating myself again. Happy Gilmore had all those checks in the back of his car, right? The publisher's clearinghouse checks. It would look like him walking forward with that, six feet wide, three feet, to, excuse me, pardon me, excuse me, and dropping his check in, right? Making a show and a spectacle of his offering because everybody in the room could see it. That's what's happening. The wealthy are coming in and they're placing their offering in, and everybody can see and hear. Can you imagine how over the top dramatic that would be? Can you imagine how distracting it would be? And can you imagine how the focus of the room would not be on the gift given to God in submission, but the piety of the one who gave the gift? This is an easy game to rig right here, guys. This is real simple. If I showed up today with a backpack full of gold bars and set them down and said, look, the Lord just moved in my heart and I don't have gold bars. I wanted to give these to you guys. I mean, you can see how quickly this becomes. Oh, wow, Matt's a great guy. Look at all the money he gave. And Jesus says, guys, can you see all this? Look at the show. How inconsequential a focus to think about the guy who's giving a great sum of money. You see, if that were the case, and we focus there, all we'd be talking about is how great the donor was, and we'd miss the deeper point of giving in the first place, a selfless and a sacrificial spirit that doesn't care who knows about or applauds what we have given, who's willing to do in secret what the Lord has asked of us without the applause of men. Quick side note here about, this this is for free about our generation's obsession with social media, it's entirely possible that without even realizing it, we are demonstrating a similar spirit. Just like these wealthy givers, they, they broadcast their good deeds. We, we sometimes broadcast our ministry gifts, abilities, activities, our contributions. We, if we're not careful, we can slide quickly from serving Jesus and making much of him to using our service to him to make much of us. We can quickly slide in from, into, from people who want to honor God in the quiet places to people who want to be seen as people who honor God in the quiet places. Big difference. Wanting to do the work of the Lord versus wanting to be seen as somebody who does the work of the Lord, two very different things. We, we I'm not saying that you shouldn't share on, your social media feed, what you're doing. That, please don't, don't, don't hear that. But it is a fine line. And I'm including, I'm including myself in this. It is a fine line to walk between living out our faith publicly and using that public faith to boost our own self-image. Be careful. We are called to do good deeds and let those deeds be seen. Absolutely. But only you and the Holy Spirit know where that line is. Listen to him and pursue him and be careful there. Okay, that was free. I won't even charge you for that. All right, back to the sermon. The widow comes in and she offers two copper coins, two pennies, right? Can you imagine the insignificance of this gift? Compared to the rich who are giving their gifts, the widow comes in and offers these two mites, these two copper pennies, these two copper coins. The practical among us, Who we should note would probably be Judas in this story. The practical among us would say, Two cents isn't even worth the stamp to mail the giving statement to her. Like, how in the world? It's not even worth the man hours to count the offering and record it. Two cents. What is two cents gonna do? Buy a, a portion of a paperclip? What are we gonna do with two cents? And those watching wouldn't be impressed by the widow. And they wouldn't be expecting much of her. Her offering is two little coins. Surely these two little coins can't really make a difference in people's lives, right? Can't really make a difference for the unfolding kingdom of God. And Jesus says, the widow that you just saw is greater than the rich. And we're saying, no, she's not. She gave two pennies, the rich gave hundreds of dollars. This is a math question. This is not, it's not a morality question. This is finance. This is easy. One gave lots of money, one gave a little money. The one who gave lots is better than little. That's how this goes, right? We're Americans, we know how this works. Rich people are inherently better people. That's what we think, right? No, 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 no. He says, look, in the economy of God, it's all upside down anyway. And he says this, he says, this lady is better she gave more. At this point, probably Judas is like, actually, Jesus, I think you forgot to carry the zero. There, there is no, 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 there's, there's no more. Like she gave significantly less, and he says, no, no, no. Because they gave out of their abundance. They gave to God out of what they viewed as a surplus. They had extra, and they gave to God out of their Extra. This lady had nothing, and she gave to God out of her nothing. Out of her less than nothing. It was all she had to live on. You see, we all understand what's going on. These people had such great wealth, they were in a position where they could give substantially, and it wouldn't hurt them. Some of us are in a position where we have to give or it will hurt us. Some of you, God has given you great gifts and abilities with business and finance, and you are able to generate large amounts of money, and at the end of the year, you have to find ways to offload some of it so you don't have to pay more taxes. This, that is not this widow. Just think about what they had so much available that they were finding Ways to give out of their abundance and out of their surplus. And this lady, though, did not give out of her abundance and excess. She gave out of her poverty. She gave all that she had to live on. Who had the greater faith? Who made the greater sacrifice? On a percentage basis, it's clear to see. The one who put everything she had in the basket. And the one who held back and only gave out of the surplus was just throwing tokens at God. Okay. Alistair Begg said this, this. Our giving is not measured by the amount dispersed, but is measured in the heavenly realms by the sacrifice involved. We, we've heard this story before, right? We, we've seen it. All right, so what? What does all of that mean? And as, I, as I've been studying this passage and as I've been applying principles from this passage over this last season of my life, I've come to see that this is not just about money. It is about money, but there's greater things happening here. There's a message to us in this about what true service to the Lord looks like. Our faith in the Lord is not a checklist of external religious activity. So many of us I'm going to put myself in this boat, grew up in in church communities that taught me, maybe they didn't say it explicitly, but the culture of the community taught me that I was more acceptable to God if my checklist was completed. You guys know what I'm talking, I'm not the only one, right? okay that, that my, my, uh, my connection with him and my relationship with him was based on, did I do all of the external religious things? Did I show up at the right place at the right time? Did I look the part? Did I wear the right clothes? Did I say the right thing? Did I stand at the right time? Did I help the old lady across the street? And all of it was built on, what did I do to get right with God? True faith True faith is not a list of external religious activities that we just check off. In fact, if you're here today and you're approaching God like that, you are demonstrating the spirit of the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. You think that if you're good enough, at the end of your life, they're going to weigh The scales and if it tips in your favor God will receive you into into his heaven on the authority of the scriptures that is not true it is not by works of righteousness that we've done but it's according to God's mercy that he saves us there is a lesson to us here in following Jesus even those of us who've been radically changed by the gospel uh, gospel's power we we who know Christ we who walk in Christ there is a message to us here as well that we have the tendency, and I would suggest the probability of sliding, care, sliding quickly into a mode where we are receiving the affirmation and the glory for the things of God. And if we're not careful, we begin to broadcast our religious devotion. Because the last thing we want people to know is that we're poor and we're needy. And the last thing we want is for people to know the backstory. We don't don't want them to see the struggles. We don't want them to see the trials. We don't want them to see the addictions and the difficult relationships, the prodigal children. We don't want them to see financial ruin. We don't want them to see depression and alcoholism. We don't want them to see any of it. So we build a culture around us that says, I'm okay with God. Look at all the things I've done. No, see, being okay with God isn't about all the things you're doing. It's about what Jesus did for you. And he died to save you and set you free and swallow up in his victory all your guilt and all your shame and the the chains of addiction that hold you. He died to break those. our, Our faith is not about that. It's not about external religious devotion. It's about a change inwardly by the power and presence of the Spirit through faith, not through works, but by believing in him. Secondly, today, there's a message in this about our giving I mean, we'd be pretty foolish to look at a message, passage like this and not at least talk about it. That the measure of the gift is not the amount, but the heart of the sacrifice behind it. This is a good, this is a good place for us to park. As Americans, we are in the top 95, 96% of uh, wealth holders in all the world. When Jesus talks about the rich, he's not talking about Bill Gates, he's talking about you. He's talking about me. That's, that's just, that's, that's economics. That's facts. We, we have more in excess than any group of people in the world. So the issue for us needs to be what is the Lord leading us to do with our finances? How is God calling us to steward those? How is God telling us to invest that, to give, And then we need to ask the question, am I giving like the Pharisees? Am I giving like the rich people? Am I giving out of my excess? Or am I giving to the point of sacrifice? Because apparently, that's what the Lord desires of us. Free and cheerful giving to the point of sacrifice. I think there's a message here about the rich and the outwardly religious. Both, both the outwardly religious and the rich thought they were in good standing because of the merit of their contributions. And this really stru- struck me this week. But the ones who really pleased God were the ones who recognized and embraced the reality of their poverty. The religious people thought they were okay with God, but the ones who please God are the ones who realize they are morally stuck in poverty. They are righteously bound in poverty, right? The the ones who know Jesus are the ones who are willing to say, I have nothing to give to you, save me. The religious people come to God and say, look at all I've done for you, is that enough? God gives grace to the humble who come and say, I am bankrupt spiritually and morally before you, save me. He gives grace to them. The Lord rejects the proud, stiff-arms them, those who come to God and say, hey, here's all my good deeds. Have you seen all the great things I've done? Let me pull up my resume and show you. Have you checked out my social media feeds? I went on three mission trips, and look at all the money on my GoFundMe page for the new projector. Did you see it? Look at all I've done for you. And he says, get away from me. This isn't about your excess of moral righteousness the only people who are made right with God are those who realize that they are morally bankrupt before him. And in that way, this widow has a whole lot in common with these people. The one who's acceptable to God is not the one who's puffed up in his own righteousness, but the one who is low in spiritual and moral bankruptcy. And, and here's, here's the, the fourth thing. I'm, I, I gave you four points, by the way. Anyone counting? Four that was extra free I made that free comment about social media and now I'm doing this it's like a two for one deal today All right. here it is this this is I need everybody to dial in right now this is the biggest point that I really wanted to make today because it is the one that has been most challenging for me and impacting for me and knowing your stories and where you are today I think it's the one that's going to mean the most to you I'm not as old as Pastor Duke we all know that right this is free, too. I, uh, I don't have dukeisms. I'm not old enough to have dukeisms yet. I don't. But I'm beginning to develop a handful of, of theological truths that I lean on over and over again when talking to people. One is, one is you can't sin yourself into a better position. I have used that one over and over again recently when dealing with people who are walking out of the bounds of God, and I say,, you can't sin yourself into a favorable position. That doesn't work that way. The second one is this that somebody gave to me. It's a sacred thing to serve the Lord out of our poverty. It this is the one that I wanted wanted to get to today. I've met with people recently whose lives are challenging to say the least, and they're feeling overwhelmed by everything that they're facing. They don't know what to do, what decisions to make in the coming days and months and years. Their relationships with their children are strained, their marriages are strained, their finances are uncertain, they're wandering again and again into the fields of addiction and depression, and they don't know what to do. They don't know how to break that cycle, and they're overwhelmed. They feel alone, they feel empty, they feel grief-stricken, they feel abandoned, and they wonder if they have anything left to give to the Lord. You ever felt that way? You ever felt, so, I see you nodding, all right, that's good. You don't, have to, don't, don't shout out loud, I don't want to embarrass you. You ever felt that way where you're so spent, you're so exhausted, you're so empty that you feel like any gift you could give to God would not be worth his approval? I wonder what that widow felt. So poverty stricken that all she had left was these two pennies. I wonder if she thought on the way in that morning, I don't have anything to give. This is such an insignificant thing. God won't be pleased with it. I wonder if you felt like I had from time to time so exhausted and so empty, so alone and abandoned that my gift to the Lord wouldn't be received, that it would be rejected. I wonder if you have let that worldly wisdom work into your heart where you think God only wants the shiny new gifts from you. You God's like a good father. Those of you with little kids, you know how Christmas works at your house? It probably works the same as my house. You pull money out of your pocket, you hand it to your kids, and they go buy you Christmas presents. What do you want? I mean, really? I'd like a nice fishing boat. That'd be fun, right? Like an all-expense trip to Aruba with my wife. That'd be cool, right? But but the heart of the gift, as insignificant as it might be in the eyes of this world, means the world to you. Remember this bit of wisdom that was shared with me during a very challenging season of my own life, where I felt like, to be honest with you, I was battling week to week just to stand up here, wondering, wondering, week to week, do I have anything left to give? And I had a friend look me in the eyes and say, isn't it a sacred thing to serve God out of your poverty? See, we're not just talking about financial poverty here. Oh, that's true. It's true. It is a sacred thing to serve the Lord out of our poverty. God is not more honored or impressed with us when we give to him out of an abundant storehouse of emotional strength, of outward joy, of seasons of victory. He's not more honored with us when we give to him when everything's okay. He doesn't look at that offering as more significant, more beneficial, more righteous, more acceptable. No, no. It is a sacred thing when we feel like we have nothing left to give to will ourselves to the altar of God and worship him anyway. It's a sacred thing to serve God out of your poverty. When your marriage is collapsing and you have no idea what to do next, it's it's a sacred thing to God for you to wake up moment by moment and say, God, I have no idea how I'm gonna get through this day, but this is the day that you've made. Help me rejoice and be glad in it. It's a sacred thing to the Lord when you're beaten up and broken down by patterns of sin that you can't break to get up every day and continue to saturate your mind and heart with the word of God in faith believing that he'll conform you to the image of Jesus. To not give up because it's not going well. It is a sacred thing because it's in those beautiful moments of surrender where God's grace is sufficient for our weakness when his power is made perfect in us when he receives the glory because those who know our situation know that we're serving him out of love not out of resource today you might be here and you might feel like you don't have a whole lot left to give maybe it's grief maybe it's a a startling medical diagnosis Maybe it is your marriage. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your finance. Maybe it's your depression, your anxiety. Maybe it's your addiction. Maybe it's your doubt. Maybe you've been walking with the Lord for a long time and you're just toying with the idea of walking away and you feel empty today. And in your mind, you've allowed that worldly wisdom to seep in that the only things that matter to God are the real expensive, shiny, brand new things. I want to remind you again today what I have needed so often in my own heart. It is a sacred thing to serve the Lord in our poverty. And if that's you today, if you're serving the Lord in your poverty, I beg you, continue to serve him like this lowly widow. Allow what is lacking in your life to be filled up by the joy of serving the Lord through it. And don't commit this fatal flaw in thinking that God is more honored by our gifts when we're in a good place. What honors the Lord is serving him in our poverty. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gifts you've given us. Lord, our lives are wonderfully rich with relationships, with friends, with the message of the gospel. Thank you for the words that you've shared with us today and what we can learn from them. Lord, I pray that we would be people who see ourselves as spiritually bankrupt before you so that we might be filled up with the righteousness of Christ. God, forgive us for our pride when we start looking at our activities of devotion as though they they tell the story of our faith. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are walking through trial right now. Like Jen mentioned this morning, each of us is carrying some weight, some burden. And some of us feel that because we're not okay, because everything isn't right, because we're sad, discouraged, depressed, lonely, defeated, that you won't receive the gift. Remind us again today, God, that you are most honored when we serve you out of our poverty, not out of our abundance and resource. Lord, remind us that when we humble ourselves before you, you pick us up. That when we in the, in the weakness of our brokenness and shame, come to you. You restore us with honor and grace. And you make a seat at the table. We become a guest of honor. God, remind those who are suffering today that there's purpose in it and your presence is there to guide them. In Jesus' name, amen.